This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of August 8, 2022, here are some top stories. A Phoenix City Council candidate says the state's highest court should hear his lawsuit to keep an opponent off the November ballot. As Christina Estes reports from our downtown bureau, the candidate is appealing a lower court ruling after learning the judge's wife supported his opponent. A Maricopa County Superior Court judge ruled last week that Kevin Robinson meets all residents' requirements to run for election in District 6. Robinson testified he rented a house in Ahwatukee to be eligible and stayed overnight there 15 to 20 times in July while spending the other nights with his wife at their Scottsdale home. An appeal filed on behalf of Moses Sanchez argues two points. One, that city code and state law define a person's residence as where the person's family lives. And two, there's a reasonable perception the judge's ability to act impartially was impaired because his wife signed on Robinson's nomination petition and that information was not disclosed. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Science News. It said, a good laugh and a long sleep are the best cures in the doctor's book. But many Arizonans find long, hot summer days, demanding work schedules, and even pandemic side effects can foul up their 40 winks. From our Arizona Science Desk, Nicholas Gerbis reports on the science of slumber. Thomas Edison considered sleep a waste of time, a heritage from our cave days, though he still took naps. Sleep research pioneer Alan Rechtschaffen held a different view. He had this very famous line that if sleep doesn't serve some absolutely vital function, it will be the biggest mistake the evolutionary process ever made. Michael Grandner leads the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson. He says sleep sustains health, well-being, and success. Megan Petroff, who heads ASU's Sleep and Health Laboratory, agrees. It's just as essential to our existence as air, water, good nutritious food. During sleep, the body downshifts into a recovery, repair, and regeneration mode possible only in a body at rest. It's much easier to change your car's oil when you're not currently driving it. This is when our body and brain consolidate the day's doings, from running a marathon cram session to running a literal marathon. Grander says it's how what we do today becomes who we are tomorrow. They're all about what happened while you're awake and how do we use that to prepare for the next time you're awake. But should I can play hard to get during Arizona summers when 14 daylight hours kick off each morning before 6 a.m.? Denise Rodriguez Esquivel is a clinical psychologist at Banner University Medical Center in Tucson. And human beings are cue to wake up with sunlight. So often folks are waking up much earlier than what they intended. Wildfires and high ozone days can make breathing more difficult, disrupting sleep. Lots of bright lights, greater humidity or dryness, like all of these types of environmental factors are going to affect our sleep. The human body favors sleeping at 60 to 68 degrees Fahrenheit, so running AC on nights hovering in the mid-80s pays dividends for those who can afford it. As UK sociologist Simon Williams put it, When we sleep, where we sleep, and with whom we sleep are all important markers or indicators of social status, privilege, and prevailing power relations. Sleep is a socioeconomic force, another currency the poor have too little of. Lower income can mean homelessness, unsafe surroundings, noisy neighborhoods, or sleep barriers as basic as bad mattresses. We really need to take care of the other aspects of our physical and mental health to then be able to drift off naturally without forcing it. 
In the U.S., about two in five laborers have non-standard work schedules like night shifts, which correlate so strongly with skin and breast cancers, the World Health Organization calls them a probable carcinogen. The American Heart Association includes sleep, the mainspring of the body's vital circadian clock, in its official definition of heart health. Brain and mood disorders can cause or be caused by lack of sleep. We sometimes see problems with sleep emerging well before Alzheimer's really takes root. We think that there might be something that's not happening for those folks when their sleep gets disrupted. When COVID-19 disrupted the waking world, it also upended our sleep. And with it, our immune responses to SARS-CoV-2 and its vaccines. Petrov's 79-country study found sleep declined significantly at this time. More than half of the participants reported clinical levels of symptoms of insomnia, and almost two-thirds were reporting symptoms of depression. COVID-19 patients suffered sleep disruptions typical of respiratory illnesses. Studies of long COVID reveal numerous cases of insomnia, extreme daytime sleepiness, circadian rhythm disorders, and new cases of central sleep apnea and restless leg syndrome. There's some research that's showing that for some folks, their COVID infection is linked to circadian rhythm disorders. Sleep research, if not in its infancy, remains in its toddlerhood. Experts still lack a direct means of measuring sleep, relying instead on indirect data like brainwave activity, movements, and heart rate patterns. We always reach a point where it sort of becomes a little slippery because we're not working from the original, we're working from a copy of a copy. Technology may one day individualize sleep health, although personal tools like sleep apps aren't yet quite up to the medical standard. One group has studied how a certain gene pattern affects sensitivity to sleep loss. Biomarker research into sleep holds promise, too. Northwestern had this great clock one. It could get a sense of where exactly your circadian time is based on two blood draws. Whatever such studies produce, the social, economic, and cultural factors that underlie and undercut sleep remain beyond the power of science alone to change. Nicholas Gerbis, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. As the search for life beyond Earth continues, some stop to ask if we should. Here's the show co-host, Lauren Gilger. E.T. Phone home. Think how strong we would be. Earth and Mars. You contact us? You contacted us. We were just listening. And there are others? Many others. I know there is much we can learn from each other if we can negotiate a truce. We can find a way to coexist. Can there be a peace between us? That is just a glimpse of all the ways that alien life has been imagined in pop culture over the years, from the scary to the silly to the benevolent. The question of what else or who else is out there is one for the ages. Today, the images of the James Webb Space Telescope are captivating humanity across the globe as we are all seeing the vast depths of outer space for the first time. But our next guest thinks we should reframe the conversation around extraterrestrial life. And to do it, he offered a classic Jurassic Park quote from everyone's favorite Jeff Goldblum role. He has that, you know, almost meme quote where he says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could 
they didn't stop to think if they should. Right. The question is to what end? And what is the reason we are wanting to communicate and to engage or, or move to other parts of the universe? Willie Lempert is an assistant professor of anthropology at Bowdoin University, and a few years ago, he got a request from Berkeley's SETI Research Center, which uses radio telescopes and listening devices to search for signs of life in space. They wanted him and a team of scholars to help them think about that question of to what end and what they should do if they did, as they say, make contact. Lempert studies indigenous cultures, and he told me we can look to history to help us answer this question, especially within the lens of colonialism. Here is our conversation. The sort of deep dive that I did to try to think about this, because it's very difficult because it's so big and so fantastical, is going back to Captain Cook. Mm -hmm. So often we think of Captain Cook as this infamous colonist, whether he's reviled or right in some circles celebrated. We think of him as colonizing Australia, sailing around the world, colonizing New Zealand. But that was not his stated mission or goal at all. His stated mission was to calculate through the transit of Venus, um, Venus essentially going across the sun and watching that through telescope. He was uh, meant to go to the South Pacific, to Tahiti, to calculate that. And that was the one data point they needed to calculate the solar distance between the Earth and the sun. And this was a really exciting scientific mission that was celestial. It, It felt like it was for the good of all and for the folks at the Royal Society who were sponsoring this mission and doing the math. In that room, they really believed in that mission. They explicitly told him, you cannot colonize. And Cook himself, he was really worried about the colonial side of things. And he was, relatively speaking, you know, pretty thoughtful. He, and it's very relative, but he worried about local folks. He did not think it was a good idea for his crew to hang out and engage with local people in Tahiti and elsewhere. Mm. They solved the solar distance. He came back. He was a hero. But within his notes, after they found the solar distance, he had these secret documents because it was funded by the crown that he should try to find, map, and essentially set the stage for mass colonization. Mm. One of the things I tried to emphasize is that, one, it would have been really exciting to sit in the room of the Royal Society. Mm. And in that context, with all their kind of safeguards, it would have been kind of a bummer to say, what if this leads to something horrible? You know, the responses they would have given you is, that's not what this is about at all. Yeah. But that is what happened. And from the perspective of history and distance, we can see that that was always going to happen. And so when we think of SETI now and the fact that folks are very excited about, you know, just listening and, and like the web telescope, it's, it's, it captivates the mind and it feels like something that is broadly expansive for our species. It is really kind of a thought experiment to think about how just like they imagined they were in an enlightenment that was post-violence and very much about this celestial science, that we might question whether or not we've thought through all the possible outcomes of this. So yes, they the explorers then also thought that they were enlightened and doing it for the right reasons, right? As we might now. Is this 
just like a cynical approach, though. Like so much of looking for life out there seems to be like it's hopeful. It's something that we have good intentions in doing, I think. Do you think yeah. that we are we are really like innately incapable of that, it sounds like? That's a great point. So maybe what I can do is give you my sort of most hopeful and most cynical take. Okay. So the cynical take, which I think is kind of valid, and I you know voiced to some of the SETI folks, is from a data perspective, if you look at the, the various um, instances of, broadly speaking, Western explorers communicating and engaging with other societies, the percentage of times that that's gone well for both sides is more or less zero. Hmm. That is the data set on earth between humans who can understand each other really well compared to potential aliens that we you know, can't even hardly imagine. So the idea that it might not go well seems fairly reasonable to at least consider. Hmm. From the other optimistic perspective, Humanity has a lot of diversity beyond the very recent space exploration that SETI and the context right now of searching for extraterrestrial intelligence involves. So to go back to you know the populating of the South Pacific and Oceania, you know folks were using credible technology and navigational systems to travel. You know, for example, from Hawaii to Easter Island, it, it's an incredible journey and it requires incredible precision. And in all those cases, there are almost no examples of those islands environmentally collapsing or you know, it, it ending in disaster. So one of the things that I have thought about is what separates you know, those two instances? And one of the elements might be the way that one thinks about what the universe is mm. and, and what um, space and time fundamentally is. And so for folks who were using wayfinding techniques to travel throughout the Pacific Ocean, they and the vast majority of humanity viewed and views the universe as filled with, with spirit, that everything is animated. Mm. Whereas this idea of planets separated by huge sort of vast gulfs of blank space. That is quite similar to Cook's and the Royal Society and the European vision at the time of just oceans and territory. Mm -hmm. So one of the things I think that really impacts the outcome is not so much the, the intention of the explorers, but much more the worldview that they carry with them and end up projecting onto those they communicate with and travel to. Hmm. Last question for you, Willie. Um, I mean, so to so many of this, this, this is all very science fiction, right? Like it's very unlikely that it'll ever happen in our lifetimes or maybe ever. But it sounds like to you it really isn't. Like this, you, have you gone there in your mind? Like what does this look like to you in, in, a, in a potential universe? It's a wonderful question. I... To me, I think a lot less about how likely this is. I think the more important thing is that the way that we imagine and, and respect and categorize and understand potential beings off of the earth, it says a lot about how we respect and understand each other. In other words, outer space in terms of place and intelligence is a mirror. 
And not only does it show us our values on earth, but it's also a place in which those values are malleable and can perhaps be shifted in ways that are very difficult on earth and can reflect back something um, perhaps a little bit more human than what we sometimes um, have on earth today. Yeah. All right. That is Willie Lempert, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Bowdoin University, joining us to talk about whether or not we should look for extraterrestrial life. Willie, thank you for coming on. Thank you for talking me through this. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. In business news, TikTok draws over 1 billion video views per day, with young people drawn to its high-energy content and charismatic influencers. And that has attracted the attention of more traditional institutions looking to capitalize on the app's popularity. Vaughn Jones explains how some organizations are using young creators to bridge the generational gap. A majority of TikTok users are young people. Over 70 percent of account holders are between 18 and 24. Tens of thousands of those users are seeing videos from the Maricopa County Democratic Party hosted by local musician Robbie Pfeffer informing them of political happenings in Arizona. The U.S. Treasury says that Ducey is using the SLFRF funds in the opposite way that they are intended to be used. So what is what is Ducey doing with these funds? Pfeffer is a precinct committeeman in Phoenix, as well as the lead singer of local band Playboy Man Baby. While the pandemic put live music on pause, Pfeffer took to his band's TikTok to keep his creative edge. It's filled an incredibly important thing for me, just as far as creative output and like just basic mental health stuff, where just having something to do has been really huge. Playboy Man Baby's TikTok page started to gain traction in 2020, with Pfeffer and the band posting anything from political videos to songs and comedy skits. Pfeffer says the videos began spreading widely outside of Arizona, but he still wanted a place to make locally-based content. I just basically hit him up and I'm like, hey, who's running your TikTok? for the uh, Maricopa County Democratic Party. And they were like, we do not have one. I'm like, okay, well, would you let me do it? And they did let him do it. Pfeffer says he was given creative free reign on the account. The videos are casual, full of bright colors, and rife with 1990s clip art. Pfeffer says it's supposed to look bad, like something out of a public access TV show. But the videos are a far cry from the party's normal communications, press releases, formal interviews, and official statements. In a room filled to the brim, with aggressive facial hair choices, Doug Ducey was quoted as saying, we presented a budget that we think has a lot in it for everyone. Edder Diaz-Martinez is the county Democrat's former communications director who helped get the project off the ground. He says Pfeffer's style works perfectly. He is able to not only highlight important issues, but he does it in a lighthearted way where he can really connect with people. And I think he also kind of takes away the whole suit and tie aspect of Democratic Party politics and just politics in general. Martinez says he hopes the county Democrats can turn TikTok followers into voters. Driving them to maybe help us, whether it's sign petitions or, or volunteer. And then obviously, once 
we get closer to the election, you know, hopefully we can, you know, send them some information about our candidates and hopefully get them to vote our way. Hey, it's really hard to meet new people, but I'm going to take the risk because honestly you seem cool. Among the billions of videos on TikTok viewed every day, there are other brands and organizations using the platform to inform. A pioneer in videos like these, especially in tone and aesthetic, is NPR's Planet Money. Jack Corbett started making offbeat videos under the show's name in 2019, covering different topics than those on the weekly radio show. Who? What? Where? When? Why? Time. Consider a small bug. How does it perceive time? Really quick or really slow? I don't know. But I do know nearly one-fifth of low-wage workers experience time theft. There have been no shortage of complex economic stories in recent years. Cryptocurrency, NFTs, inflation, and the impact of the pandemic. Corbett says TikTok is a great platform to make those topics easier to understand. It's really, like, rewarding. It's like those kind of comments. I still, like, look back to, like, people being like, wow, it's like I didn't understand this until now. The Desert Botanical Garden in Phoenix has been creating videos using the garden as a backdrop to educate people about plants. Want to see something cool? This pretty little cactus that just started blooming is the Trichocereus uh, flying saucer cactus. That was the garden's marketing and communications manager, Abdel Jimenez. He says while educating people on TikTok, he's learned a lot himself. I don't really come from like a botany or, you know, the plant background. I don't know how to take care of plants myself, (laughs) but it's pretty neat to, I guess, you know, showcase all of the knowledge that I've learned. Jimenez says that since the garden's videos have gained popularity, more and more people come in to see plants they saw online. Despite some viewing the app as just a place for dance trends and comedy videos, Corbett says TikTok is a platform to be taken seriously when it comes to education and youth outreach. TikTok, it's not just like a way to grab like Gen Z's ears so like you can pull them to do something else. It's like, you know, you can actually do meaningful stuff on there. Vaughn Jones, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Fronteras news, officials say a major aqueduct project designed to bring potable water to Yaqui towns in Sonora is moving ahead. It's part of the so-called justice plan promised by Mexico's president. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Blust reports. Last year, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador officially apologized to members of the Yaqui tribe in Sonora and promised to bring justice for historical wrongs they've suffered in Mexico. One piece of that is water. And this year, a $100 million aqueduct project got underway to provide potable water to people in Sonora's eight Yaqui towns. Though originally slated for completion in 2024, Sonoran Governor Alfonso Durazo said this week that with current advancements, he expects the aqueduct and accompanying pumping stations to be in operation by December 2023. The Yaqui have been fighting for centuries to safeguard water and other resources on their land. Kendall Blust, KJZ News, Hermosillo. In education news, Arizona K-12 schools will receive $500 million in new funding this year, but may be prevented from spending it. Nick Sanchez has the details. A constitutional cap on school budgets limits how much districts can spend each year, unless state lawmakers vote to waive the cap. If not lifted, the cap could lead to a massive cut in school funding, layoffs, and possibly an early end to the school year. Arizona Superintendent Kathy Hoffman spoke to PBS's Arizona Horizon. It could effectively cut around $2 billion from our public education system. So saying that we just added $500 million for our base funding and $100 million for special education, all of that progress would be washed away. 
Hoffman wants Governor Doug Ducey and state lawmakers to lift the cap now, before a new governor and new legislators take control in 2023. Nick Sanchez, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And finally, in Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Tribes along the Colorado River are finally getting their say on water policy. Here's Lauren Gilger. Stakeholders along the Colorado River are trying to figure out how to drastically cut their use of water, and fast. In June, the Department of the Interior told states that use the river's water, they had to save two to four million acre feet of water. And as our partners at KUNC have reported, they had to do it in only two months. Now the tribes are asking for a bigger say in the negotiations over how to do this. They are senior water rights holders along the Colorado, but they have historically been left out of decision decision-making about it. Well, our next guest reports that's starting to change. Deborah Kroll, who covers Indigenous Affairs for the Arizona Republic, wrote about it recently, and I spoke with her more about it. Well, if you look at both the upper and lower basin, currently tribes are entitled about 20 percent of the entire flow. Here in Arizona, once all of the, the tribes have their water settlements said and done, that's more like north of 40 percent. Right, right. But at the same time that they hold this kind of control over Colorado River water, they have historically been kept out of conversations about how we use it and and particularly now about how we conserve it as we face this ongoing drought, right? Oh, yeah. If you go back to the 1922 Colorado River Compact, despite the fact that some of the tribes along the Colorado River, such as Colorado River Indian tribes, Fort Mojave Indian tribe, Quetzon, had all had their their water allocated as early as 1865, they were left totally out of the discussions. Um, There was only one small mention about, well, reserve rights for tribes are still there. Between that and the fact that, that settlers came in and started taking water away from the original first users. And as we all know, the, the law of the river starts with first in time, first in use. Tribes should really and really are the senior water rights holders. But you write about how this is sort of shifting and tribes are now being included in these conversations. You were at this uh, Las Vegas conference of the Colorado River Water Users Association where the tribal leaders were, you know, right there with the other stakeholders. Tell us about that. You can see a shift in how the water experts known collectively as the water buffaloes Hmm. um, regard and work with tribes. It used to be that tribes had their own special little, little sessions and everybody else had their sessions and nobody really talked to each other. This time the tribes were right there at the front table with other senior water managers. They signed the compact to allocate 500,000 acre feet of their own water to help shore up Lake Mead because as Governor Stephen Rowe Lewis and Crit Chairwoman Amelia Flores said that we're basically all in this together. So we're all going to conserve water together or we're all going to run out of water together is basically what they were saying. So this is kind of a turning point that, that tr- people are finally starting to realize that tribes can and should and should have always had that equal seat at the table. And this is an important moment for there to be a turning point, right? Because we are, we we have to cut Colorado River shares. Parties have essentially been ordered to, right? 
Yes, the um, Bureau of Reclamation has ordered the seven states along the two basins. We're lower basin states, Arizona, California, and Nevada. They are going to have to make significant cuts to their Colorado River allocation, as are the upper basin states. And next week, Bureau of Reclamation is supposed to be issuing its report on how much water people can expect to receive in 2023. Mm-hmm. So so this is all coming together really fast that people are going to have to realize they're going to have to get along without without as much water as they used to before. And the tribes are in agreement with this. And in order for everyone to get through this, everyone everyone is going to have to work together. And and with the kind of senior shares that tribes hold, what kind of impact can they have in terms of, of reducing our use of water? Well, legally, they could just say, I'm taking my share and, and the heck with you guys. Right. But they're not because they know what it's like to be without water. And their prosperity is tied to the prosperity of the entire state. And so they're willing to work with their non-tribal neighbors to make sure everybody at least has some water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I know in particular, I've, I've had Crit Chairwoman Amelia Flores on the show talking about their efforts to lease water and following some of their fields, using less, finding ways to farm less thirsty crops, things like that. What are some of the moves tribes are already making to do this? Well, with Crit and Fort Mojave in particular, they are actually using cutting edge methods of, of irrigation, the, the, the fields that they are irrigating. Yeah. They've imported technology over from Israel, which is like a world leader in water conservation. And they've fallowed some fields. There are also some movement toward rebuilding a lot of the old infrastructure that was originally built for them by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. A lot of that infrastructure is old and cracking and failing. So they need to to do a lot of rebuilding to make sure that water is getting to where it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I want to end, Deb, by asking you a little bit about the very different approach that tribes take to water. You write that they won't just focus on water as a commodity. And the history, of course, of tribes and the Colorado River in this region goes back millennia. Tell us about that and the effect that that different approach could have here. Well, the tribes here in the Southwest, like like basically all indigenous peoples here in the Americas, consider water as essential to life. So it's not just something to be bought and sold. It's it's a sacred commodity. And it's not commodity as in capitalist commodity. It's a sacred, essential part of life. So every tribe has some sort of, of statement in their language. Water is life. And they realize that if we don't have any water, then nothing's going to live here. And so they look at that from a holistic standpoint rather than just a capitalistic standpoint. And that philosophy may well be what helps carry us through this drought. All right. Deborah Kroll covers Indigenous Affairs for the Arizona Republic, joining us to talk more about her story on tribes and their voice in the Colorado River negotiations. Deb, thank you for coming on. As always, I appreciate your reporting. Oh, thank you. 
And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.